0: Shockingly brief, given the lives lost, cost, and national trauma, but the American Civil War's two greatest significances are that the nation was preserved and slavery was ended. This is the story of a major step in ridding this country's association with the peculiar institution. This is the story of the labored steps the passage, the 13th Amendment. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. A few words about the man who history would tab, the great emancipator. After winning by an electoral landslide in the election of 1864, the political realist Abraham Lincoln assessed, I am here by the blunders of the Democrats. A few months earlier, just after Sherman's capture of Atlanta in September of 1864, and two months before the national election, a New York Republican predicted, No man ever may be elected to an important office who will get so many unwilling and indifferent votes as Lincoln. The cause takes the man along. Ohio Congressman Louis D. Campbell added, Nothing but the undying attachment of our people to the Union has saved us from terrible disaster. Mr. Lincoln's popularity had nothing to do with it. And Congressman Henry Winter Davis insisted that people voted for Lincoln only to keep out worse people, keeping their hands on the pit of the stomach the while Indeed, in the election of 1864, Abraham Lincoln electorally won re-election by an overwhelming vote of 212 to 21. Most convincing, but the popular vote merits a closer look. After four years in the midst of spread-eagle patriotism during a civil war, Mr. Lincoln barely improved his popular standing in the North from the first election back in 1860. In that election, he captured only 40% of the national popular vote. In the North alone, he received 54% of the popular vote, and that was against three other candidates. Running against Democrat Major General George Brenton McClellan in 1864, Lincoln received 55% of the popular or Northern vote, an improvement of only 1% over 1860. And that was against only one candidate rather than three. In nine states, Maine, New Hampshire, Michigan, Wisconsin, Connecticut, Minnesota, New York, Pennsylvania, and Vermont, His percentage of the popular vote decreased from the previous election. The 45% who voted for McClellan considered Lincoln and his conduct of the war a failure. Most of those who voted that way lived in cities. Perhaps they did so since they had day-to-day access to the press. For the record, in all major urban areas, Abraham Lincoln lost. In New York City, he lost by 42,073 votes. In the key electoral states of New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, which amassed a total of 80 electoral votes, only a half percentage point separated Lincoln and McClellan. A shift of 38,111 popular votes in a few selected states. Less than 1% of the total popular vote, and George McClellan would have been elected the 17th President of the United States. Indeed, Mr. Lincoln gave the Republican Party another four years of executive leadership. But remember, by 1864-65, the Republicans were a splintered party. Conservatives, moderates, and radicals. Bostonian Lydia Maria Child may well have captured the begrudging tribute and sentiments of radical Republicans when she wrote, There was no enthusiasm for honest old Abe. There is no beauty in him that men should desire him. There is no insinuating polished manner to beguile the senses of the people. There is no dazzling military renown, no silver flow of rhetoric. In fact, no glittering prestige of any kind surrounds him. Yet the people triumphantly elected him, in spite of all manner of machinations, and notwithstanding the long, long drag upon their patience and their resources which this war has produced. Others were not so begrudgingly complimentary. Back in his adopted home state of Illinois, the Illinois State Register wrote that the president's re-election was... The heaviest calamity that ever befell the nation. The farewell to civil liberty, to a Republican form of government, and to the unity of these states. And some of his harshest critics were those fired from across the Atlantic. The London Punch published a caricature of Lincoln as the federal phoenix, rising above a fire that consumed commerce, the United States Constitution free press, credit, habeas corpus, and states' rights. The London Herald added with vitriol that Lincoln's re-election was due to the strength of his party and to his own lawless abuse of executive power, not to the belief of the people that no better man could have been chosen. The paper continued, Mr. Lincoln is a vulgar, brutal bore. Wholly ignorant of political science, of military affairs, of everything else what a statesman should know. Now, rest assured, there were those who were ecstatic the 16th president was reelected. But, despite an ambivalent electorate and confronted by very vocal adversaries who in state and federal houses believed the president's leadership was misguided or misapplied, Abraham Lincoln made it his political and personal mission to complete the work he had begun with the Emancipation Proclamation. A few words about that executive proclamation and steps to strike down slavery. As to that proclamation, which was issued Monday, September the 22nd, 1862, in the wake of McClellan's reported great victory at Antietam, the President declared that on January the 1st, 1863, slavery would be ended in those areas still under rebellion. Though few, if any at all, were actually freed, Lincoln chose a path from which he did not want to retreat. The president hoped to declare the proclamation earlier in July, but Union military reverses on the Virginia Peninsula prohibited that. Remember that Lincoln's public stand at the beginning of hostility was first— to save the Union. Case in point, his Friday, August 22nd, 1862 response to New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley. In that open letter, Lincoln telegraphed, my paramount object is to save the Union and not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it, and if I could do it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that." Despite his public response to Greeley in August, five months earlier, in March of 1862, Lincoln asked Congress for a joint resolution that would provide federal aid to any state willing to adopt a plan for gradual abolition. It would require states to declare all slaves within their borders freed upon reaching a certain age or specify a date after which slavery would no longer be allowed. Lincoln figured that less than one-half day's cost of the war would pay for all the slaves in Delaware at $400 per head and that 87 days' expense would buy all the slaves in all the other border states combined. Ending slavery in Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, he believed would break the hope of the seceded states, that those states still within the Union that had slaves might bolt to the Confederacy. Obviously, the measure depended on the support of delegates from those four border states, and the timing was not right. All but one refused to support the measure. On Saturday, July 12, 1862, those same border state representatives continued their non-support when Lincoln personally renewed his attempt for the earlier resolution. Those that said no argued emancipation in any form would lengthen, not shorten, the war. It, in their words, would further consolidate the spirit of rebellion in the seceded states and fan the spirit of secession among loyal slaveholders in the border states. Loyal slaveholders also maintained they would be punished by giving up their slaves while those in the seceded states kept theirs. Meanwhile, the Republican majority in the legislative branch began to push their own agenda. In April of 1862, Congress passed a bill calling for the compensated emancipation of slaves in the District of Columbia. Lincoln supported this, for he never doubted the constitutional authority for Congress to abolish slavery in areas that fell under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Of course, The matter became more complicated when radical Republicans in Congress began to address slavery in the seceded states where slavery existed and where it was, like it or not, protected by the U.S. Constitution. In July of 62, to the vocal protest of Democrats and moderate Republicans, the radical bloc passed a second confiscation bill. A quick aside about the first one passed in early August of 1861. In late July of 1861, Senator Lyman Trumbull of Illinois introduced what would be the first Confiscation Act. The senator from Illinois wanted to attack the Confederacy's war economy. His bill stated, if a slaveholder used a slave to aid the Confederacy, he forfeited his claim to such labor. At the start of the war, this was an area that sent tremors through both legislative and executive branches. Then John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky blurted, I tell you, sir, that amendment is an act of emancipation. The president wanted it diluted. Lincoln did not want actual confiscation of slaves, nor did he want to punish slaveholding families. In the last hours of that congressional session, August 1861, legislators watered the original down and Lincoln signed it. Not one slave was freed by the measure. The second Confiscation Act came, as we mentioned, in the summer of 1862. This radical Republican measure suggested every Southerner was guilty of treason, and therefore draconian measures were warranted. It would mean the freeing of all slaves that came within Union control, arming those slaves, and once freed, colonization for those who desired it. Lincoln, once again, was able to muster enough influence to tone the measure down. Last-minute changes took care of most of his objections, so he signed it, But he did send along a veto message he had prepared had the legislation not been diluted. As for the passage of that second Confiscation Act, moderates were pleased. Abolitionists were upset. It wasn't enough. For the president, slavery was an abstract issue. He agreed with the most passionate abolitionist that slavery was a moral, a social, and political wrong— But he could not ignore the constitutional protection of the institution where slavery already existed. Throughout the war, Lincoln consistently maintained that Congress could not abolish slavery. He believed, as chief executive, he could. He also believed that the people in the amending process of the Constitution could as well. But in 1862, McClellan's disasters on the peninsula of Virginia prompted the president to act. In his mind, extraordinary means were required to save the Union, and in the face of military reversals, Mr. Lincoln had an opening to deal with the issue and used it. He knew Southern slaves dug trenches, built fortifications, served as teamsters, cooked picked cotton, and grew crops so that masters could go to war without worrying about hungry families back home. If soldiers in the Confederate armies were divested of their slaves and those slaves would join Union forces, then the North would reap a decided advantage. In this vein of thinking, an Emancipation Proclamation could be justified as a military necessity and a legitimate move thanks to the president's constitutional war powers. Lincoln revealed this thinking to cabinet members Secretary of State William Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells in the early hours of Sunday, July 13th, as the three rode to the funeral of Secretary of War's Edwin Stanton's infant son. It was Wells who noted in his journal that this was... A new departure for the president, for until this time, in all our previous interviews, he had been prompt and emphatic in denouncing any interference by the general government with the subject. Seward was so struck by the bold precedence of the measure that he wanted time to think about it before responding. The matter rested until Monday, July 21st, when Lincoln called a special cabinet meeting for 10 that morning. They met, not as usual in the president's official office, but upstairs in the second-floor library. Cabinet members listened as the president, concerned about military reversals, proposed measures. One was to give Union generals in Confederate territory authority to appropriate any property necessary to sustain themselves in the field. Another would sanction the payment of wages to blacks brought into the Army's employ. The session ran long, and Lincoln wanted all back the next day, Tuesday the 22nd. More than likely, gathered in the President's office, Lincoln read his preliminary draft of his Emancipation Proclamation. Removing two fool's cap sheets from his pocket and adjusting eyeglasses, Perched on his nose, he began to read. He set the proclamation date for January first, 1863. All there were aware that in a single stroke, his measure superseded legislation on slavery and property rights that had guided policy in 11 states for nearly 75 years. All there could not miss that the president promised freedom. They listened in silence, astounded by Lincoln's boldness. Secretary of War Stanton immediately recognized the military advantage of the measure. Attorney General Edward Bates called for the document's immediate announcement. It is interesting to note that he believed the measure would deport all freed slaves to sites in Central America or Africa. Lincoln was a proponent of relocation, but believed immigration should be voluntary. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells and Secretary of the Interior Caleb Smith were silent. Postmaster General Montgomery Blair argued with great energy against the measure. Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase, a radical, interestingly felt the measure would lead to chaos in the South and Seward, after reflecting for several days and thinking outside the box, feared an unexpected result would be the disruption of the flow of cotton, and that might invite English or French intervention. He also realized the proclamation would be a paper one. Union armies would have to enforce it. Still, Seward decided he would not oppose it, but did suggest waiting for a better time militarily speaking. Lincoln accepted that suggestion, and on the heels of Lee's retreat from Maryland in September, he convened again with the cabinet on Monday, the 22nd. To lighten the mood at a tense time, the president read from Maine humorist Charles Farrar Brown and his country bumpkin character, Artemis Ward. Seward may have been the only one to appreciate the diversion. He chuckled and laughed. Chase forced a smile, while Stanton looked impatient and irritated. Finished, the president then took a graver tone and announced that some days earlier, he had decided that when Lee's army was driven out of Maryland, he would issue his proclamation. As he put it, I made a promise to myself and to my maker. This time, he sought no advice. He simply read the measure, which had been slightly revised since July. That revision made it clear that the document was a military necessity. The next day, it was published. Radicals were ecstatic. Conservatives and Democrats were shocked. And Southerners were somewhere in the chasm between stunned and livid. As the target date drew near, New Year's Day, some wondered if the president still had the backbone to follow through. Indeed, he did. After suffering through yet another New Year's reception for the general public at the executive mansion, he finally got around to signing the document just after 2 p.m. William Seward and son Fred joined him in his office. As the parchment was unrolled in front of him, he took a pen, dipped it in ink, moved his hand to the place for the signature. But that hand, trembling after shaking hands for the last three hours, Lincoln stopped and put the pen down. To Seward, he volunteered, "'I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing the right thing than I do in signing this paper.'" If my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign the proclamation, all who examine the document hereafter will say, he hesitated. Yes, the document freed only slaves behind enemy lines, but the document changed forever the relationship of the national government to slavery. Oh yes, there was great celebration, but... There was also great consternation from peace Democrats, border state officials, and as we mentioned, those in the Confederacy. And so the document that was a watershed moment for civil rights in this country until the very last months of the war was signed and went into effect. That was good for the moment, but by late 1864, with the Confederacy in a vice, The newly re-elected Abraham Lincoln, though given a mandate by his re-election, but all too aware of the closeness of the popular vote, wanted to take the next step. He wanted in his mind the most viable and legitimate means possible to kill slavery by constitutional amendment. It became an obsession, for he feared that the proclamation would go away once the war came to an end. As Lincoln put it, It might be added that it only aided those who came into our lines, or that it would have no effect upon the children of the slaves born hereafter. He reasoned a constitutional amendment would be a king's cure for all the evils. Now let's stop for a second and take a quick look at the very document which Lincoln held dear and swore to protect and defend the U.S. Constitution. To repeat, the president believed only a constitutional amendment could do the trick. For when the Constitution was ratified by the ninth state in June of 1788, although the exact words slave or slavery were absent, the supreme law of the land included several provisions about those held in involuntary servitude. One, in Article 1, Section 2, was the Three-Fifths Clause which allotted congressional representation based on the whole number of free persons and three-fifths of all other persons. A second was the Fugitive Slave Clause, found in Article 4, Section 2, which stated no person held to service or labor in one state would be freed by escaping to another. And in the Bill of Rights, the Fifth Amendment states no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Those three examples made the legal precedent that slaves were, indeed, property. Future congressional acts and Supreme Court decisions cemented those interpretations. The Missouri Compromise in 1820, the Wilmot-Proviso in 1846, the Compromise of 1850, and the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision in 1857. Now, a test on your memory of civics or governments class back in high school. To amend the Constitution, and in 1865, that had been done only two times since December the 15th, 1791, when the original 10, the Bill of Rights, had been ratified the 11th amendment was ratified february the 7th 1795 and granted immunity to states from suit for money damages or equitable relief without their consent the 12th amendment ratified june 15th 1804 refined the process by which a president and vice president are elected by the electoral college Problems had arisen in the national elections in 1796 and 1800. So to address those issues, the 12th Amendment was added and requires an elector to distinctly cast one vote for president and one for vice president. And, oh yes, there have been several amendment attempts that were not approved. In fact, six. Thousands more have been discussed, and currently we stand at Twenty-seven amendments, All were ratified in a process defined by Article 5. Quite honestly, there are two ways, but only one has been used. A new amendment must be ratified by two-thirds of the House and Senate, then sent to the states. Three-fourths of the state must then affirm the proposed amendment. The other method, again, never used, requires a constitutional convention to be called by two-thirds of the legislatures of the states. That convention may propose as many amendments as deemed necessary, and those written must be approved by three-fourths of the states. For Mr. Lincoln and a possible 13th Amendment, the Emancipation Proclamation opened the door for striking down the constitutionally protected institution of slavery, and said constitutional amendment would do it emphatically. Interestingly, this was not the first proposed 13th Amendment. There had been two previous, and both failed. The first proposed 13th Amendment is still pending, from May the 1st, 1810, and is called the Titles of Nobility Amendment. If ratified by three-fourths of the states, it would strip citizenship from any U.S. citizen who accepts a title of nobility or honor from a foreign country without the consent of Congress. The second pending 13th Amendment, since March 2nd, 1861, is referred to as the Corwin Amendment. Named for Senator Thomas Corwin of Ohio and pushed by Secretary of State Seward, the measure was an attempt to appease the South. It read, No amendment shall be made to the Constitution which will authorize or give to Congress power to abolish or interfere within any state, With the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. In 1861, it won two thirds support in both houses. Ohio was the first to ratify it. Maryland and Illinois followed, but the onset of the war disrupted the constitutional process. How ironic. An earlier 13th Amendment would have protected slavery. It would have, if ratified, shielded domestic institutions of the states from the constitutional process and from abolition or interference by Congress. The one we now make reference ended it. Such is the strange journey that war and crises constructs. The constitutional amendment to end slavery was kickstarted Monday, december fourteenth, eighteen sixty three, when Ohio Fifth District Representative James Mitchell Ashley proposed such an amendment. So too did Iowa first District Congressman James F. Wilson. On Monday, january eleventh, eighteen sixty four, Senator John B. Henderson of Missouri submitted a joint resolution for a constitutional amendment. The Senate Judiciary Committee, chaired by Illinois Senator Lyman Trumbull, accepted the task of merging the different proposals into one. As he did, Radical Republican Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts and Representative Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, already at odds with the president's meddling in Reconstruction, sought a more expansive version of the proposed amendment to end slavery. On Monday... February the 8th, 1864, Sumner submitted his version, which read, All persons are equal before the law, so that no person can hold another as a slave, and the Congress shall have power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry this declaration into effect everywhere in the United States. That version, with all persons are equal before the law, failed before the Trumbull-controlled Senate Judiciary Committee. And so, on February the 10th, the committee presented the Senate with an amendment proposal based on drafts from Ashley, Wilson, and Henderson. The committee's version used text borrowed from the 1787 document known as the Northwest Ordinance, which was passed under the Articles of Confederation. The borrowed language included, there shall be neither slavery... Nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than in the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. The Senate passed the amendment Friday, April the eighth, 1864, by a vote of thirty eight to six. On Wednesday, June fifteenth, just over two months after the Senate approved the measure, the House voted ninety three in favor. 65 against. There were 23 abstentions. The decision was 13 votes shy of the required two thirds vote, and as you might guess, the vote, for the most part, fell along party lines. Republicans voted for, and Democrats against. Opposition to the measure was based largely on issues that revolved around federalism and states' rights. Some opposed, for fear the amendment would constitute revolution and full citizenship for freedmen. Of course, those in favor argued that slavery was morally wrong, uncivilized, and retarded the nation's progress. They also suggested that slavery had a negative impact on whites. It lowered wages and promised repression of abolitionists in the South. What Mr. Lincoln needed were votes from moderate Democrats and particularly Unionists from the border states. To do that, the president instructed Secretary of State William Seward, Massachusetts 5th District Representative John B. Alley, and others to procure votes by any means necessary, such as offering government posts and or contributions to lame-duck Democrats willing To switch sides. In fact, Seward put together quite a large fund for direct bribes. As January 1865 began, Lincoln wanted the measure reintroduced in the House. He was fully aware that he was asking the same body to reconsider and debate once again, but he hoped that since the election, moods and views might have changed. Mr. Lincoln believed Republican gains in November might change the vote, and so he called a special session. He wanted the amendment and bipartisan support. The opposition was led by the 1864 Democratic vice presidential nominee, George H. Pendleton of Ohio. On Pendleton, Senator James Blaine of Maine noted that, though he had been defeated in the election, he returned to the House with increased prestige among his own political associates pendleton would be a worthy and influential adversary representative ashley reintroduced the measure friday january the 6 1865 speaker of the house shuler colfax estimated the amendment to be 5 votes short of passage so ashley postponed the vote till the end of the month and Lincoln up the pressure for adoption. The president himself used the rest of the month to try to sway those on the fence. One tactic was to invite House members to his office, where he dealt gracefully and effectively with each. To James Rollins of Missouri, he said, I have sent for you as an old Whig friend that I might make an appeal to you to vote for this amendment. It is going to be very close. A few votes one way or the other will decide it. To Rollins, he emphasized how important it was to send a message to the South that the border states could no longer be relied upon by the Confederacy to uphold slavery. When Rollins promised his support, Lincoln jumped from his chair and grabbed the congressman's hands, all the while expressing his profound gratitude. Now the president sees the opportunity for Rollins to convince others in the Missouri delegation. Tell them of my anxiety to have the measure pass, and let me know the prospect of the border state vote. An old politician, Lincoln put his allies onto the task to deliver votes from two particular wavering members. When those allies asked the president how to proceed, he said, I am the President of the United States, clothed with great power. The abolition of slavery by constitutional provision settles the fate for all coming time, not only of the millions now in bondage, but of unborn millions to come, a measure of such importance that those two votes must be procured. I leave it to you to determine how it shall be done, but remember— that I am the President of the United States, clothed with immense power, and I expect you to procure those votes. In other words, Mr. Lincoln made it clear that his power is extended to plumb assignments, pardons, campaign contributions, and government jobs for relatives and friends of faithful members. To illustrate, Brooklyn Democrat Moses Fowler O'Dell agreed to change his vote, and when the current congressional session ended, he was given the lucrative post of Navy agent in New York. It was at this time that Ashley learned that the Camden and Amboy Railroad might serve as an instrument to secure two votes from New Jersey Democrats. Ashley thought Senator Charles Sumner might be convinced to postpone a bill he had introduced to end the monopoly that that railroad enjoyed and thus win over two votes. Unable to persuade Sumner, Ashley asked Lincoln to intervene. Here was one boulder even the president could not move. As the date of the House vote neared, pressure intensified. Democrats, known to be wavering, were made fully and graphically aware of the dire consequences within their party if they changed their vote. Beyond the fate of slavery, they were reminded of the party's commitment to states' rights and how this measure would affect a fundamental shift in constitutional power. All were aware the vote would be razor thin. Mr. Lincoln likened it to an adventure on the open sea. We are like whalers who have been long on a chase. We have at last got the harpoon into the monster, but now we must look how we steer, or with one flop of his tail he will send us all into eternity. On the very morning of the scheduled vote, Tuesday, January 31st, Ohio 5th District Representative James Mitchell Ashley, the man who introduced the House measure back in December, feared the vote would fail. It certainly did not help that rumors were circulating that Confederate peace commissioners were on their way to Washington City or had already arrived. Ashley lamented, If it is true, I fear we shall lose the bill. The President and Ashley knew Democrats would prevail upon wavering party members. They would argue the amendment would lead the commissioners to abort peace talks. To Lincoln, Ashley pleaded, please authorize me to contradict it, if not true. And Lincoln responded immediately, so far as I know, there are no commissioners in the city are likely to be in it. Ashley later learned that Lincoln, in fact, had been informed that three peace commissioners were en route to Fort Monroe but he could honestly, if insincerely, claim that no commissioners were in the capital city. Ashley admitted that if Lincoln had not artfully dodged the question, the proposed amendment would have failed. As the session opened, Ashley acknowledged that never before, and certain I am that never again, Will I be seized with so strong a desire to give utterance to the thoughts and emotions which throbbed my heart and brain? The amendment's passage would signal to him the complete triumph of a cause which is the beginning of my political life I had not hoped to live long enough to see. Ashley noted on the day of the vote, every available foot of space, both in the galleries and on the floor of the House, was crowded at an early hour, and many hundred could not get within hearing. Chief Justice Salmon Chase and the members of the Supreme Court were present. So, too, were Secretary of State Seward and two relatively new cabinet members, Treasury Secretary William Pitt Fessenden and Postmaster General William Dennison. Dozens of senators were there to witness the historic vote, and so, too, were members of most foreign ministries. Ashley wisely yielded his time to the small band of Democrats who now supported the amendment but felt compelled to justify their vote back home to their constituents. First, Ashley called upon Archibald McAllister of Pennsylvania, who stated he changed his mind when he became aware that the only way to bring about peace was to destroy, as he put it, the cornerstone of the Southern Confederacy. His remarks brought applause from the packed galleries, as did those of his Democratic colleague, Pennsylvania's 16th District Representative, Alexander Coffreth. Though he knew other Democrats would condemn him, he stated, If by my action today I dig my political grave, I will descend into it without a murmur. After every Democrat who wanted the floor had spoken, the voting began around four in the afternoon. Congressman Ashley remembered that hundreds of tally sheets had been distributed on the floor and in the galleries. At first, it appeared the measure fell two or three votes short of the required two-thirds. With that apprehension, the floor and galleries were in tumult when Speaker Colfax stood to announce the final tally. With a voice filled with emotion, he ended the drama when he proclaimed On the passage of the joint resolution to amend the Constitution of the United States, the ayes have 119, the nays 56, eight abstentions. The constitutional majority of two-thirds having voted in the affirmative, the joint resolution has passed. Without five Democrats who changed their vote, the amendment would have failed. Journalist Noah Brooks reported, for a moment there was a pause of utter silence, as if the voices of the dense mass of spectators were choked by strong emotion. Then, there was an explosion, a storm of cheers, the like of which probably no Congress of the United States ever heard before. Before members even left their seats, artillery roared from Capitol Hill, announcing the momentous decision. Ashley brought to the War Department a list of all those who had voted in favor, and Stanton ordered three additional batteries to fire 100 guns with their heaviest charges while the Secretary of War slowly read each name aloud. Stanton volunteered. History will embalm them in great honor. John Nicolay, one of Mr. Lincoln's private secretaries, sent a telegram that documented the final tally. Friends also raced to the executive mansion to share the news. There, the president was thrilled. In his mind, it was the consummation of his greatest work, the Emancipation Proclamation. That night he made a speech to celebrants who gathered. The occasion was one of congratulation to the country and to the whole world. But there is a task yet before us, to go forward and consummate by the votes of the states that which Congress so nobly began. Lincoln signed the amendment February the 1st, 1865, thus making still the 13th amendment the only one ratified and added to the constitution signed by a president no praise was probably more welcome or gratifying than from lincoln's old fiery critic abolitionist william lloyd garrison who began his crusade to end slavery 34 years earlier speaking before a gathering At the Boston Music Hall, the 59-year-old journalist and abolitionist said, And to whom is the country more immediately indebted for this vital and saving amendment of the Constitution than perhaps to any other man? I believe I may confidently answer to the humble rail-splitter of Illinois, to the presidential chain-breaker for millions of the oppressed, to Abraham Lincoln. Now the states quickly moved to approve the amendment. By the end of the month of February 1865, 18 states of the required 27 had ratified. In chronological order, Illinois, Rhode Island, Michigan, Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Missouri, Maine, Kansas, Massachusetts, Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Nevada, Louisiana, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Note that among those 18, Union governments in Virginia and Louisiana embraced the amendment. Shortly thereafter, within the calendar year of 1865, and again in order, Vermont, Tennessee, Arkansas, Connecticut, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Alabama, North Carolina, and Georgia ratified the amendment. Georgia's ratification was the required 27th state. Oregon, California, Florida, Iowa, and Texas ratified the amendment post-enactment. And New Jersey, Delaware, Kentucky, and Mississippi first rejected the 13th amendment, then later voted for it. It is interesting to note that of those last four states, two, Kentucky and Delaware, were border states. New Jersey finally ratified the amendment in January of 1866. Border State Delaware symbolically ratified the amendment in February of 1901. Kentucky in March of 1976. And Mississippi, again symbolically, in March of 1995 and officially certified in February of 2013. With acceptance by the required number of states, the 13th Amendment became a part of the Constitution December 6, 1865, 61 and a half years after the 12th the longest interval of time between congressional amendments in our Constitution's history. The measure, in addition to abolishing slavery and prohibiting involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime, also nullified the Fugitive Slave Law and the Three-Fifths Compromise. Yes, southern states after the war passed black codes to retard the effects of not only the 13th, but the 14th, which extended citizenship and was ratified July 9, 1868, and the 15th Amendment, which was ratified February 3rd, 1870, giving freedmen the right to vote. Yes, these three so called Reconstruction Amendments were passed, but as we are all aware, there would have to be many more crusades, laws, judicial decisions and martyrs to fully achieve what was intended, and many would say we're still battling. But the barred door first had to be battered in, and that began with the adoption of the 13th Amendment. So momentous the process, the debate, and ultimate decision that even One of Mr. Lincoln's bitterest enemies, Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, realistically commented after the process and passage was over, the greatest measure of the 19th century was passed by corruption, aided and abetted by the purest man in America. Our next installment reveals another event, like the 13th Amendment, that had repercussions that extended far into the future. An event that one could say began on George Washington's birthday, February the 22nd, 1863, when in the very midst of Civil War, ground was broken at Sacramento, California for the Central Pacific Railroad. Next time we gather, story of an event which was, as historian Stephen E. Ambrose put it, nothing like it in the world. Next time we gather, the creation and building of the Transcontinental Railroad. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter. And the roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.